You'll notice in your bulletin this morning, we're looking at Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10, and we will be spending a good portion of, their, of our time in that particular text. But I, I do want to also cite and, and read a section in the previous chapter, Isaiah chapter 34, specifically verses 8 through 10. I'd love to ask you to turn there with me if you have your Bibles with you or if you'll notice that, that pew Bible right in front of you uh, in, in the rack. I'd love to start with Isaiah 34 verses 8 through 10, which I think helps set at least some of the context for what we'll consider in the glorious text of Isaiah 35, 1 through 10, another one of those very exalted and high lifted up um, texts in the prophet Isaiah, uh, a glorious picture of redemption. Um, so I want to pick up the reading first, though, in the what we might call the judgment section of Isaiah uh, 34, specifically a word uh, to the nations. So hear this word now, Isaiah 34, beginning in verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall be quenched. Uh, it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever. And ever. And now, if you will, look at right across the page to Isaiah 35, beginning in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where uh, they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness." The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we would ask now as we've heard your word read in the presence of your people, you would meet with us in this word. That you would grant in great measure the power of your Holy Spirit, 
who has been given the effective ministry of bringing to light to the hearts of your people what the truth of your word means, specifically to reveal to us the glory of who Christ is, to have the light of this Christ shine into our hearts. And it is toward that end that we pray. Would you hear now this petition? And would you meet with us? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Marilyn Robinson is the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist for the very well-known book now entitled Gilead, but also several other beautiful and brilliant novels like Home and Lila. She has become in the last decade or so, probably one of my favorite uh, living authors, and it seems with every book that she writes, whether it's a novel or a book of essays, she uh, goes a little bit closer to the top of the list of my favorite authors even of all time, which is why last year I was uh, thoroughly excited uh, when her long-anticipated book, Jack, was released. Um, Though Jack, a part of this series of novels that she's um, writing, not set in Gilead, Iowa, um, where most of her novels are, are set. This one's set in St. Louis. Uh, it focuses upon this lead character, Jack, who you're introduced to in the three previous novels that she's written. And in this particular um, uh, volume, um, it focuses upon Jack's life and maybe specifically Jack's uh, marriage to a woman by the name of Della, who is an African-American woman. Jack himself is a white man. And he is, finds himself in the predicament of living in a time period where it wasn't just socially unacceptable for interracial marriage. It was actually illegal. And from the standpoint of the family and from the standpoint of the time in which uh, Jack lives, he is what we might call a wayward son. Um, He has left his family. Um, He has, in any traditional sense, left the faith. At least that's the way the family would have perceived it. He has charted his own course, and it has been quite uh, unconventional. Uh, He has not gone according to expectations or or traditions. Um, But as you read the the life of Jack, and especially in this particular novel, you're you're struck, um, I think as a reader, that he's not so much a prodigal son which is how some would have cast him and even understood him in the previous novels, he's more like a man in exile. A man who was born into a world that he has never felt apart. Uh, A man who is described actually in that very novel as a man who is naked inside his clothes. It's a way to experience the kind of shame and estrangement that Jack experienced very often. He just never quite Uh, fit. Um, In the book, you can sense the cloud of of judgment, so to speak, over the character of of Jack, and and oftentimes the subject of theology and even the end times arises in the dialogues between Jack and Della. In fact, there's one particularly moving scene where Jack and Della, who have to again have this clandestine common law marriage because of the illegality of what it is that they are uh, engaged in, they're meeting in a cemetery, which is a bit ironic. And they're meeting in that cemetery at the cover of darkness. They don't want to be seen. 
And while they're there in the seminary, uh, cemetery, seminary, <laughs> in the cemetery under the cover of darkness, um, they're talking about the end times. And all of those pieces are sort of coming together for the two of them. It's there where they begin to brainstorm about how it's all going to end. And um, Della actually says, as a kind of conjecture, all right, well, let's just say that it, it was all struck by a meteor. And then Jack responds, well, then it's not our fault. And she says, no, and yes, like the flood. Hmm. Jack responds, I see, so it's still that kind of universe. Yes, probably. But we can't be for sure. Maybe the meteor is just, well, a meteor. If you say so. My father would say that a sparrow isn't just a sparrow. Because its fall actually means something. Cosmically. I'm not sure what, but my father, well, he was certain of it. Well, my father would say that too. So consider all the sparrows that your meteor is going to bring down. And all the lilies that your meteor is going to pulverize. How could it be just a meteor? Now, this particular dialogue, as you can say, as see in the reading of it, is something of the tension of the modern time in which we live. Do things just happen? And is there no real explanation for the why of the things that they happen? Or could it be that, that crisis, could it be that um, cataclysmic destruction, um, wars and death and the ravages and poverty and sorrow and all of these things are actually traced to the meaningfulness of a God that's behind these things, who actually has in view, especially as it regards the end of time, inescapably the judgment for the sinfulness of man. That's part of the concern here, of course, with Della when she actually notes to Jack, well, yes and no, it's not our fault then, what's well, sort of like the flood. And of course, Jack, being raised in a Christian family, knew immediately that she's referring to the flood. She's referring to Noah, of which this utter devastation of the whole of the world was brought on by the wickedness and the sinfulness of, of man. Uh, yes, the flood is our fault, and no, it's not all just my fault. It's our fault. And could it be that the meteor is like unto that? You know, in Isaiah, and we've seen this with each of the passages we've looked at, there are two possible ends. There's either the end of destruction, or there's the end of salvation. Over and over in the prophecies, we've learned, and in some ways uh, unnervingly, that these two ends, whether it's destruction or whether it's salvation, almost always entail some kind of crisis. Tragedy, we might even say judgment, entails for either, either type. Uh, last week in Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 11, we saw that God used Assyria to actually lay low the people of Israel. He used Assyria, a pagan nation, as an instrument of judgment towards his own people. And then he immediately took up the axe against uh, that same people that he had used as an instrument of judgment by using another nation. 
And the vision at the end of Isaiah 10 is that everybody gets judgment. A field full of stumps, we're told. With a tiny little shoot that's coming out of the stump of Jesse. But in order for that tiny little shoot to come out of the stump of Jesse, if you'll recall that passage from last week, this vision of hope, this this starting over, this beginning again, this new life, it comes out of judgment. It comes out of the wielding of the acts of God towards the very roots of that tree. That whether you are destroyed in the judgment or whether you're saved in the judgment, the fact of the matter is that judgment in one way, shape, or form is coming. But what Isaiah has been teaching us, and I think what we see here in Isaiah 34 and 35 that I want to reflect on and meditate on together today is that not all judgments are created equal. It matters very much what kind of judgment we're talking about. There is a judgment that leads to destruction. And there is a judgment that leads to salvation. In chapter 34 of Isaiah, you have the glimpse into the judgment that leads to destruction. We have an, a really a kind of frightening passage, don't we? This day of vengeance, this year of recompense, where God comes for the cause of Zion, and He turns um, this beautiful place called Edom into a burning wasteland where the waters themselves are on fire and the soil is turned into sulfur and the smoke's going to go up forever from generation to generation. And then we have in Isaiah 35 what looks to be an extremely upbeat passage, doesn't it? I mean, we we have the lame leaping, we have the mute singing, we have the blind seeing, we have the dumb speaking. Um, we, have, we have desert places becoming a lush oasis of water and fruitful blossoms of flowers. We have an incredible reversal that's taking place. Uh, and and it's, all, it's the exact opposite of what we saw in the previous text. The, the previous text is Edom, a beautiful place, turns into a wasteland. Now we have a wasteland that turns into a, a beautiful place. That's the, the reversals that we see in Isaiah 34 and, and 35. Uh, but, but what I want you to see is, is the reversals come, come out of judgment in Isaiah 35 too. It's a small note. It'd be easy to, to miss it. But if you look there in verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 35, notice the way it reads. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an ancient heart, heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with what? Vengeance. And with the recompense of God. He's coming with vengeance. He's coming with judgment. But notice the next line. He's coming to save you. There's a judgment that leads to destruction. And there's a judgment that leads to salvation. And we see that the outcomes of these two uh, judgments create two very different places. Uh, One judgment, the judgment that leads to destruction, creates a wasteland out of a beautiful place. And the judgment that leads uh, to salvation takes an ugly, bombed out place and it turns it into a a lush, incredible, idyllic um, glimpse of Eden. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. Why does one judgment lead to destruction? And why does the other judgment lead to salvation? That's really the questions on your mind, isn't it? That's the question on my mind. I want to make sense 
of why it's revealed that way in the Scripture. And I'd like to suggest that our normal ways of thinking about judgment and, and the simplistic ways that we think often about uh, judgment and, and our relationship to it, even as believers, is, is not satisfying enough. And part of what I think Isaiah here is he takes us a little into the deep end of the pool, so to speak, to help us understand the complexities of judgment um, condemnation, destruction, end time, salvation, what all of those things actually uh, mean in their, their, their outflowing. Now, it'd be easy to, and tempted, I guess, in some ways to think that, well, uh, one answer for why judgment for some, or we might say for some nations or for some peoples, um, ends in destruction is because they're bad people. That would be, that'd be a, an understandable um, uh, conclusion that we would draw. That, that bad people receive severe devastation and judgment from the Lord. And, and the people who survive the judgment from the Lord, even if it's, even if it's very difficult, are, are people who are good. They're, they're able to withstand uh, the judgment of the Lord. They, when the judgment comes, they're not undone like the evil ones, they are able to stand their ground. They're, they're actually able to survive. And as we see in the passage, even, even more than that, they're able, to, they're, they're able to thrive. Now, the problem, there's a big problem with this. The, the problem with this is that it's not biblical. Um, that explanation. Um, the Bible tells us that everyone's a sinner. And every, everyone's bad. Right? Okay, we're, and I hate to break this to you. I know it's a Sunday before Christmas, but I must tell you the truth. Uh, all of us in this room are sinners, for all have sinned, the Scripture says, and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, none is righteous. And in case you didn't get it, Paul says, no, not one. All right? he, it's almost like he knew what was going on. None are righteous. And we were saying, yes, yeah, I'm sort of righteous. Yeah, I'm kind of, no, not one. Okay, 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 okay. You know, that's kind of how it reads. All right? Everyone's a sinner. Now, I heard something a while back from uh, Russell Moore, who was talking about Marilyn Robinson's novels. We both share a love for her. And, uh, and he was saying one of the things that he loves about her novels, another thing I deeply love about her novels, is that there are really no villains in the novels. Um, you know, those of you, you know, those of you going to watch Spider-Man, you know, right, there's this very clear villain, right, and there's this very clear hero. Well, interestingly, in Marilyn Robinson, there's, there's not that sort of cosmic villain hero thing going on. In fact, every person in her novels is, is dealing with, um, well, there's, there's surprising goodness in them, and there's, there's, there's um, surprising darkness in them. They're, they're almost like real people. They're almost like a real mix of uh, brokenness and, and beauty. Um, they're, they're, very, they're very Calvinistic characters, shall we say. Um, they're, they're, they're a real mix of uh, the recognition of the original glory that's, that of which we've been framed by, the image of God in man, and yet the fallenness of the human condition means that the whole of our beings have been touched with the reality of sinfulness. You know, sometimes that doctrine of total depravity, which some of us recoil against for understandable reasons, like we hear total depravity and we think, oh, that's not me, and that's, you know, it's Adolf Hitler, maybe, right, but that's not me. Um, we think of sort of comprehensive depravity. We think of like being the worst possible people in the entire world, and we're like, well, I'm seeing Christian, non-Christian people out there doing incredibly great things, and sometimes they're easier to get along with than even Christians, and so I can't get along with this doctrine of, of total depravity, but that's not what Calvin's saying at all. Calvin is just saying that every part of our being is touched with sin. 
And, and, and not just in that it's touched, it, it's drawn into it, right? That our minds and our desires and our feelings and our, and our wills, they're, they're all tainted with, with sinfulness. And, and Calvin actually said it had a shape to it. It had a, it had a, a concave shape to it, uh, meaning the shape of the human, the human should have been outward towards the glory of God, convex, should have been outward. But instead, in sin, it's turned inward. That, that we now look to ourselves as a reference point for all of life. <laughs> uh, we look for meaning. We, we look inward. We look for significance, and we look at what we've done. We look for joy, and we think about our satisfaction. And it's actually, we do all of these things, and we do them over and over and over in life. And, and guess what? We're miserable, lonely people. Because that's not how the human person's actually designed. So we're caving in on ourselves. That's what Calvin would say. And one of the ways this is seen so clearly is in the way in which we try to get ourselves out of trouble. When we find ourselves in trouble, we don't immediately or instinctively turn to the God who made us. We don't, we don't even turn to the people around us who might get help. We try to um, keep it hidden that we're having issues. Uh, we try to pull together all of our resources and uh, get it done as best as we know to do. And only, only after we exhaust ourselves entirely in the self-salvation project of our natural instincts do we only then, occasionally, remotely, finally ask someone, maybe even God, for help. And it's the most humiliating thing in the world when we do it. Except it's exactly what we were made for. It tells you something's wrong. Deeply wrong with the internal operations and impulses of the human person. They're, they're, they're turned in when they should be turned out. Now, for interestingly, for Isaiah, this is captured in a nation. When he is giving the judgment section here in Isaiah 34, it's interesting, he's, he's speaking to all the nations. If you go back to the beginning of Isaiah 34, you say that he's addressing all the nations, but he actually mentions one nation several times. He mentions it in verse 5, he mentions it in verse 6, he mentions it in the section I read to you, verses 8 through 10, and it's this, this nation called Edom. It's this nation called, called Edom. Now, when an Israelite would have heard Isaiah 34, I think I can do this without any kind of conjecture, um, an Israelite would have immediately thought of Numbers chapter 20. Now, they may not have thought of Numbers 20 per se, but they would have thought of the story of what took place in Numbers 20. And this is when the people of Israel are making their way out of Egypt. They've, they've come through the Exodus They've sinned against the Lord. They're wilderness wandering for 40 years. They're anticipating entering the promised land. And now they're near the end of it, uh, that whole journey. And they've come up against the land of Edom. And Edom is, is a land they need to pass through on their way to, to the land of Canaan. And on their way to crossing the Jordan River and, and ending up in the land of Canaan. So they come to the edge of Edom. And you know what they do? They ask uh, the Edomites, can we, can we cross your land? You know, they're asking for easement, right? Some of you have built a house and you had to go across someone else's land to get to your house. And you're like, this is going to turn out really poorly if they don't let us <laughs> drive across their land. It's like, where's your house? Over there. I can't get to it, right? Because I got the only way to get to it is to get through someone else's land. That was sort of the experience of the people of Israel. If they couldn't get through Edom. They're going to have to take the long way around. So they, they, they asked the Edomites, can we, can we cross? They even very graciously said, um, listen, we'll, we'll pay for the water we drink as we make our way across. We, we've got great streams. And uh, the Edomites said, no, 
said, no, you can't, you can't cross our land. Now, why? <laughs> why did the Edomites do that? Well, some of you, because you're biblical scholars, you, you know that the Edomites are from the descendants of Esau. And um, you, you also know that the people of Israel are from the descendants of Jacob. Remember these brothers? You remember Genesis 27? Let me just say one word. You'll remember it all. Birthright. Remember it all now? Jacob stealing Esau's birthright? Yes. That was generations ago. But the resentment is fresh. They'll have nothing to do with the people of Israel. You are the people. Your forefathers are the people who stole our birthright. You cannot cross our land. You see, this is what, these are the things you don't understand at your family Christmas, right? Um, you know, that Uncle, you know, Uncle Charlie, who uh, is estranged and shows up at bizarre times and says weird things, and everybody's awkward when he's there, and then he leaves. And then you ask your mother or your grandmother, what's all that about? Oh, nothing, nothing, son. Well, nothing whatsoever. Everything's totally fine. Edom, okay, that's what's going on. Generational sin, unreconciled, creates resentment. Now, in this particular moment, Isaiah clearly is is using Edom um, in an analogous sort of way, illustrative way. And, And as he looks to the nations of the world, he's like, the nations of the world are like unto Edom when it comes to the salvation of our God. God is making a way, he is preparing a way of redemption to come to earth. And as he comes across our land, we go, you can't cross our land. You have no place here. You see, the Edomites were the people who said, the Lord will not have a way here. There will be no way for the Lord and the way for his people here. It was tantamount to rejecting the promises of salvation granted through Abraham in the lineage of the Old Testament. These people were turning away salvation. That's the picture that Isaiah is giving us as he talks about the nations. There is no way for the Lord here. Now we can actually catch that in the text if you look at verse 9 and 10 of Isaiah 38, notice the language, the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch. Notice water is a big theme. That was a big deal in the request back in Numbers 20. Soil into sulfur, and then verse 10, from generation to generation it shall lay waste. Notice this. And none shall pass through it forever. You think to yourself, why is that noted? (laughs) Well, Israel tried to pass through it. And there was a reason to pass through it. But now no one will want to pass through it. It will be nothing but a smoldering heap of destruction because the judgment of the Lord will fall upon it. Now, as I mentioned, the way of the Lord, this this judgment that leads to destruction, obviously it comes because you reject the salvation of the Lord and what it is that He has offered. Now, the irony of this is that for the Edomites, it meant that God's salvation didn't come the way we wanted it to come. It didn't come through our ancestors. It didn't come through our people. It didn't come through our forefather. In in fact, it came through the younger son who swindled it out 
of our ancestors' hands. Um, this is a backward approach to doing salvation and extending the promises of God's covenant throughout the generations. We will have nothing to do with it. If this salvation doesn't come through us, we don't want any part of it, especially in light of the history between us and the people of Israel. We won't be united to such a people as that. Now, what's interesting about that is each time that you and I are in our very normal daily lives, um, on our own sort of self-salvation project, determined to, to make our own way rather than to walk in the way of the Lord, rather than to unite ourselves to the one who has come before us, rather than to cling to the Lord in humility and in confession, rather than to rely on His power and His resources, the transformation of grace, rather than running to the Lord to say, no, I'm going to have nothing to do with it. I'm going to figure it out myself. You're going to do it my way. We're going to do this my way. Edomites. Edomites. That is the judgment that leads to destruction. That's the warning of the text. Now, what's interesting is, it's very clear that there's a judgment that's open to us. Look at verse 35, or chapter 35. There in verses 3 and 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, verse 4, Be strong and fear not, behold your God. He will come, notice, same language, vengeance and recompense. Same language. But now he comes what? To save you. To save you. Uh, you know, there's this section in, in Gilead in Marilyn Robinson's The Pulitzer Prize winning novel that I'm, I'm determined to mention it enough so that you'll read it uh, in the sermon. Um, in that particular book, she writes about grace and she, she says this. She says, the idea of, gr of grace has been so much on my mind. Grace as a sort of ecstatic fire that takes all things down to their essentials. Now, it's not exactly the way we think of grace usually. But I'd like to suggest it's, it's the grace that's suggested here. Grace that actually strips away. Do you know, when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly, there's a stripping away process that has to happen first. And it doesn't happen unless this process happens first. I remember once talking to a, to a young man with some success. In fact, he probably was about my age when I was... Uh, well, I was probably um, I was probably in my mid twenties, and he was probably a few years younger than me at the time. But he'd been great, quite successful, um, too successful to be in his early twenties. And in uh, in as we were talking about Christ, and we were talking about grace and what it required of us, and, and me mentioning because he was graduated from a very prestigious university, um, had already published himself, had did. You know, had an incredible inheritance and bloodline uh, from which he came. We were talking about Christ, didn't know the Lord. We are saying, you know, following Christ is, is a lot like, well, giving up all of those things to follow him. It was really a rich young ruler moment. 
as we're sitting there talking with each other. And as I'm talking through it with him, it's, it's, this, it's this, this ecstatic fire. The, the, the grace that the Lord's inviting you into is so rich and so deep, it can't have rivals. It can't have other things that vie for it. Everything must be burned away to the beauty of the thing that's most essential. And so that's what he's really calling you to. And I'll never forget his response. His response was, well, if we take all those things away, I'm afraid there's nothing left of me. Now, truth be told, some of us feel that way. Let's remove your family heritage. Let's remove your job. Let's remove your bank account. Let's remove all of the history that you have of people saying nice things about you. And let's, uh, you know, all the things that you tend to look to to make sure that you're enough. Whatever that is, grace removes all of that. And it says the only thing that your life can be founded upon is Christ. Nothing in this world can sustain the power of your life. can sustain the identity that you've been built in. Everything else will cave. It will fail you. I said to that young man, I said, if you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the interesting thing is, all of those things will be taken away from you. And there, you're right, there'll be nothing of you left. And that's a good thing. Because if you're in Christ, all that's left is Christ in you. You see, that's the judgment that brings salvation. Do you know real salvation always comes with the fire of grace on the front end? You know, it's the most humbly thing in the world to confess your sin. And especially to do it with one another. To repent. To unbuild the legend you think you are. In the presence of other people. And before Almighty God who has all of the power to destroy you. To do that honestly, to do that openly before the Lord, that that feels like judgment. That feels like fire. A fire that leads you to salvation. An ecstatic fire that is the grace that gets down to the essentials. Because if if there is nothing of you and there is only of Christ, it sounds a lot like Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. You know, this is why Isaiah and other places can so, well, he can speak in such a lofty, lofty language. He, he can say things like, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, he says. The flames will not consume you. Isn't it interesting how fire is used in the Bible for utter destruction and for judgment, but it's also used regularly as an imagery for purification. You know, when Paul is speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3, and he's rebuking the Corinthians for trusting in, in men and, and in the party spirit of, I'm from Paul and I'm from Apollos, and he unbuilds them graciously in, in his rebukes. And he says, listen, If anyone builds on a foundation other than Christ, on the day of Christ's return in the judgment, all of it will be burned up. Now he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to believers. This is what makes us so terribly uncomfortable. 
He's saying our work, our labors, all the things that we do that are not built upon the foundation of Christ, they don't last. They get, they get burned up. Only those things, he says, which are founded on Christ are the things which survive. Only those things. Now, for some of us, we think, well, I trusted in Christ so I would have no judgment. It's actually not technically what the Bible teaches. Is that in judgment, you won't be condemned. That's why you have Christ. But the testing of the fire of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment will be to only purify the gold that he has put within you. The flame will not hurt you. The flame cannot consume you. You'll be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And there will be another figure in there with you. It won't be that you won't pass through it. It's that in passing through it, we will see Christ in you. We will see the gold of Christ in you. The brilliance of the beauty of who he is in you will come out. And all of the things that you and I have done to cover him up will be gone. They'll be utterly removed. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume. Thy gold to refine. Do you know why we can withstand those fires of judgment in Christ's second coming? Is because the condemnation that we deserved, He has removed from us by entering the fiery furnace on the cross on our behalf. You know, in the heat, the white heat of the Father's wrath that was poured out upon Christ when he was on the cross became that which gives us the confidence today to know that that record has been removed. Uh, that, that worst of the hay and the stubble are not a part of our record at all anymore. They're worthless. It's been totally removed. And that one day in Christ's return, we have no reason to fear the judgment that comes, no reason to fear the flames, because Christ is in you. Only the gold to refine. As Christ is our substitute, so are we now to participate in the grace of His advocacy as He works within us by the Spirit. As we enter into this final week leading up to Christmas and we celebrate Christ's return, I wonder in the light of what He's spoken to us today, are you ready for His arrival? Are you ready for His return? If something in you says, I don't know all of a sudden. My guess is you're not looking to his grace. My guess is that you have turned inward. And you're looking at yourself. And you're thinking there's no way that a person like me could be saved. You're having a hard time believing that our Father is more forgiving of you than you are. But He is. But He is. His cross is sufficient. 
His resurrection is the validation of its completed work. When he cried on the cross, finished, he wasn't joking. If you are in him, there is no judgment worth the name left for you. For that flame that is coming at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will be but to you the joy of the revelation of Jesus. Hasten the day. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Oh, Father in heaven, we do pray for the reality of Christ. As we would ask that he now, in the power of the Spirit, through this word, come into our hearts. And ready us for the day of his return. Indeed, we trim our lamps. And we ensure that we have plenty of oil. As the light burns in the darkness. We look forward to the darkness being expelled when the light of Christ's grace comes forevermore. And we together with him in the new heavens and the new earth know the brilliance of the sun that never fades or dies out. Even the face of Christ our Savior. Assure us, comfort us, challenge us, grow us. The ecstatic fire of grace purify us. Get us ready for Christ's return. We pray this in Jesus' name.